Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on The Mark Steiner Show, and your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. On our way to our conversation with Chris Crass, I want to remind you, uh, this is The Mark Steiner Show's 24th anniversary on the year. Uh, this year, our 24 years on the air, we're going to be bringing you some really interesting archives over the next month to celebrate our 24th anniversary. Uh, and it's just good to be on the air with you all for all these years on public radio, uh, trying to bring some sanity here to this mad world. Uh, and it's also International Women's Day, a day without a woman. Today, we show solidarity with all the women oppressed here in the United States and across the world. Uh, women wearing red, if they're working, women are out uh, striking. Uh, Alexandria school system is closed because so many of the teachers refuse to show up for work today uh, on this day of a day without a woman. So we are celebrating that as well. We're about to have a conversation with Chris Crass, who is founder of the anti-racist movement Building Center, the Catalyst Project, helped launch the National White and Anti-Racist Network, Surge, which is showing up for racial justice. They, along with the Baltimore Racial Justice Action, are sponsoring a conversation with him this Friday night, March the 10th, at the Church of the Redeemer uh, here uh, in Baltimore. He's also co-founder of Colors of Resistance, Resistance, which is a clearinghouse and think tank, uh, and author of Towards the Other America, Anti-Racist Resources for White People Taking Action for Black Lives Matter, and Chris Kress. Welcome to the Mark Steiner Show. Good to have you with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And y'all can join us at 410-319-8888. Write to us here at talkatsignershow.org by email. Tweet us at Mark Steiner, but do join in, 410-319-8888. So, Chris, let's uh, let's talk a bit about some of the stuff you've been writing about lately and especially this world we're right now uh, and part of what you'll be talking about when you come to Baltimore, which is we have this uh, new person in the White House who in many ways rode, rode, uh, rode a wave of racism uh, and, and more to get into the White House after eight years of the first African-American president and all the critiques people may want to give that presidency or not, withstanding, uh, it was a momentous, momentous occasion that America got to this point, whatever that point means. So talk a bit about what your analysis is of, of where we've come to and why we're here. Well, I mean, in a lot of ways, it, it really reflects the history around Reconstruction after the Civil War. And so after the Civil War, you had a time period in which uh, black political power through voting rights, through uh, black elected officials, uh, through a whole wide range of uh, anti-racist measures against the slave system and an expansion of democratic rights, which not only was uh, for formerly enslaved black people, but also for a lot of poor and working-class white people who had an expansion of political rights. Whenever there's been an expansion for black people around political rights and democratic rights in this country, overwhelmingly, it's also benefited poor and working-class white people. But as you had an expansion around black political power during Reconstruction after the Civil War, you had the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, you had the rise of lynching, you had the rise of a racist political structure to suppress that black power. And after Reconstruction, you had the, the re, re, uh, uh, creation of Jim Crow. So you had Jim Crow apartheid come up to suppress black political power, a, a whole wide range of uh, Ku Klux Klan racism, elected official racism, racism of the judges. So in so many ways, it is so painful to see that Barack Obama and the presidency and this time when a multiracial democracy was moving forward, Black Lives Matter, uh, raising some of the enduring realities of institutional racism, 
a country really struggling to, to deal with that reality. Uh, more and more people on the streets for racial justice, for di- multiracial democracy. And then you have the rise of this racist reaction that brought Trump into the office. And so what we need to learn from with the Reconstruction time period and then this racist reaction is that we need to continue to build powerful multiracial movements. And for myself, working in the white community, to get as many white people as possible to move from uh, disbelief or outrage of what they're seeing with the Trump administration to solidarity and alliance with people of color to build multiracial democracy. So, you know, we've often said in this program um, that in, in many ways we feel like we're in 1887, something akin to 1887 at any rate, which was the destruction of the, of the, of the, the destruction of Reconstruction uh, in this era, which was what you described, a period in America where we had this great experiment in multiracial democracy led by black people in the South and newly freed people. So the question is, we, here we are in 2017, and we have a much more complex country in many ways than we had in, in, in previous periods, even in the period around the late 60s after the civil rights movement and the blossoming that happened and the assassinations of Malcolm Martin and Bobby Kennedy, Nixon becoming president, how things began to unravel over these last 49 years, um, and the battle pushed back over these last 49 years. But we're also in a more complex place. We have a country that is much more diverse than it ever was. Um, the Muslim population is large, larger now than the Jewish population in America. Um, we have a, a huge Latino population as well in this country from, from different uh, uh, Spanish-speaking countries, especially in, in the Western Hemisphere. So we're in a complex place with all this, plus the, the, the rise of the women's movement and, 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 and what today is. So in, in that complexity, can, we talk, can you talk a bit about that in terms of that complexity? Yeah, and those are all, the, I mean, it's all such incredible potential and possibilities for the kind of society that we want to live in. And so with International Women's Day today and the women's strike that you've been talking about, the rise, of, I mean, the women's marches after the inauguration were a, a revival of the, the human spirit all over the world. You could feel the energy and the, 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 the sense of possibility out of the women's march and today with the uh, Day Without a Woman. Um, and then this multiracial, multi-faith society that we live in, I think so many people are aspiring to wanting that kind of a multiracial, multi-faith society. Uh, and what you're seeing with the Trump administration is a, a major backlash to the changes in this country. And I, in many ways, truly believe that this is the, the kind of last gasp effort of a, a racist, a minority to hold on to power. And the racist minority, we have to be clear, it has always been a minority. I mean, still significant numbers of people, but it has always been a minority that has been able to wield power to be able to mobilize fear and resentment and, and economic uncertainty towards racism. But it has still been a minority. And so we are becoming more and more a majority that also includes progressive and open-minded white people, I mean, young white people overwhelmingly embrace a multiracial society, a multi-faith society, uh, a society that embraces a wide range of uh, genders and sexualities um, and who we are as families and communities. And so that minority, though, is holding power. And it's clear. I mean, Steve Bannon and others have made it clear that the Muslim travel ban, for example, isn't just about banning people from coming into the country. It's about trying to clear, 
send a clear signal to the people in this country that people of color are not wanted, that Muslims are not wanted, and that people should be living in fear. And I mean, I, I have a friend who, uh, you know, South Asian friend who has seen these murders that have been happening of South Asian uh, uh, people in the United States and Kansas and out in South Carolina, and he's leaving the country. He's taking his family and leaving the country. And he, you know, he was born and raised in Kentucky. You know, his family is in Kentucky, but he is he sees the, the writing on the wall, and he sees the violence that is happening to people that look like him, people who are like his daughter, his young uh, 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 pre-K uh, uh, kindergarten te- uh, uh, daughter. And ironically, they're going to Germany. So we got people in the U.S. right now, people of color, people uh, of different backgrounds, who are feeling the the weight of the Bannon and Trump administration uh, and their racism and are literally fleeing to Germany and other parts of the world to get away from it. And so that's what this administration is trying to do. It's trying to get rid of the people of color that already live here and trying to prevent people from coming here. And so we they are trying to hold on to that minority of power that they have. So we have to be bold and courageous as the majority uh, of the society who we are and we need to defeat this minority. So is there a little bit of contradiction there? I mean, I'm just talking about what if this is a minority or majority or something where fluctuation in between a plurality. I mean, I mean, I think that, you know, we said in this program a great deal that, that, um, that racism is in the marrow of the bone of the society. It's so deep that you don't even know you've got it when you've got it. Uh, right. right. I mean, it's like you have a, it's a cancer building inside of you. You don't even know it's there until it erupts. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? So, so, and, and that, and that if you look at, I think there may be, there's a, there's a strong minority of white people in America who do believe that racism is a deep seated problem. We have to deal with it more than ever poor in history, but still a minority, um, within, within the white community, within the larger white world. So how do you get to that? Um, you know, and I asked you that as a question to somebody. I know you've been involved in this for the last quarter century. I've been involved with it for twice that long. <laughs> yeah. So the question is, and as an organizer, so the question is, how, how, do you, how, do you, how do you propose this kind of multiracial movement is built in this era of Trump? Well, I mean, I think we need courageous voices in the white community that are for racial justice, that are against racism, that are for, that paint uh, a picture of what kind of a world we want. What does multiracial democracy mean for white communities, for white families? And so for myself as a young person, you know, learning more and more about black history, about Chicano history, you know, at first it was sort of like I felt like I was like learning about other people's history. And then I was being told, you know, by, you know, having uh, relationships and through friendships with people of color who were like, you know, black history, Chicano history, this is U.S. history. Right. This is your history. Right. And, and one of the ways that, that, that racism works to uh, make white people functionally illiterate is to get white people to believe that no, nothing about racism is something that they're supposed to learn about, that people of color history is not something they're supposed to learn about, that uh, when someone starts talking about the racist history of this country to kind of tune it out and push it away. And that makes white people illiterate to really being able to see how the economy, how the political uh, uh, society is developed, how power operates. And so for myself as a white person, over, overwhelmingly, there are far too many voices in white society that speak about racism, but who are racist. And so the, the voices of white people who are for racial justice, who are for anti-racism, need to be uh, not only louder, 
but we need to speak in a way that is really trying to save the hearts and minds of white people from what, what for me, it's a, you know, it's a death culture of white supremacy, just like making white people illiterate, turning white people, you know, I've got two, two uh, white kids, you know, five and one and a half. And I know, I know that racism, the structural racism, the cultural racism is going to raise them to automatically see people of color, particularly black and brown uh, uh, men, as criminals, as threats, as violence. And so knowing that this society works on the hearts and minds of white people to turn us into uh, essentially soldiers or collaborators with racism, that we need to have white leadership in white communities is speaking clearly and courageously and with a, a picture of what kind of a world we want to white kids, to white schools, to white communities, to white uh, uh, institutions, churches, synagogues, uh, uh, to really win the hearts and minds of white people to a multiracial democracy that isn't about, look how bad racism is in communities of color. That's also saying, yes, we have to end the, uh, the death culture that's impacting communities of color, and look at what racism is turning white people into. I mean, James Baldwin talked about how uh, racism turns white people into moral monsters. And so seeing the ways that racism impacts the lives, the, the morality, the, the, the spirituality, the culture of white people uh, into collaborators with this evil and being able to really, for, me, for myself, I view this work not because I'm like, I, I, I want to, uh, you know, I hate all these racist white people. I do this because I love white people and I hate to see what racism does to my people, to my kids, my community, my family. And I want my, my, the white people in my life to be a part of the beloved community that Dr. King and the civil rights movement uh, we're working for and continue the Black Lives Matter and other movements continue to work for today. So I'm curious what, what form you think that takes, especially in this in this 21st century, for you in terms of organizing. I was thinking about, I was reflecting about this the other day and, and then thinking about it again this morning as realizing we we're going to have this conversation, you know, that, that back in the late 60s, you know, people went off and they organized, let's say, in uptown Chicago with the Young Patriots, which is where I was for a while and some other places or in Appalachia. You, people organized and part of the organizing was around those people's economic rights, but also about around the issues of race and racism and building collaborations. What form does that take in 2017, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it takes all those forms. I mean, I think it's both, you know, uh, what's happening right now with a lot of uh, white or mostly white congregations that are opening themselves up as sanctuaries um, for undocumented immigrants, sanctuaries for, uh, for Muslim and LGBTQ and other people in their communities who might be under attack, um, who are taking bold stands around, you know, we, uh, we affirm a multiracial democracy, a multi-faith democracy. So those kinds of stands as, as a white, con- uh, white congregation. But then also... Uh, for more and more institutions and people who, white people who are in positions of leadership, in whether it's a small business, whether it's at a community college, to make themselves, you know, sanctuary businesses, sanctuary uh, 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 schools, whatever it is. Um, and, but then also at the same time, joining when it's possible in multiracial alliances. So I know, for example, that uh, the Showing Up for Racial Justice group in Baltimore works with a wide range of groups, um, people of color-led groups like the Tubman House, Baltimore Block, uh, Baltimore Algebra Project, uh, 7,000 Families, and others, um, working in collaboration with people of color-led organizations, where those organizations in Baltimore that are people of color-led will take it, 
this is what we're working on, this is our campaign, or this is the action that we're taking, and this is the way that it would be really helpful to have participation from white anti-racist folks who can then also organize and build support in the white community for the work that we're doing. And so sometimes that might be like showing up um, for community events and trying to bring, trying to break the segregation by bringing white people into people of color-led spaces so that white people begin to hear the voices, the stories, uh, uh, the visions from people of color. I mean, segregation works so hard to keep white people from ever knowing the humanity, the lives, the, uh, the political leadership of people of color. So opportunities with Baltimore showing up for racial justice to bring white people into people of color spaces like that. Um, other times it might be, you know, fundraising and doing logistical support, childcare uh, to support people of color led organizing and leadership uh, to really move things forward. Uh, but I also think it's crucial that there's organizing in white communities around the real uh, economic miseries of, you know, the ways that jobs have gone overseas, the ways that unions have been crushed. I mean, all this talk about make America great again. I mean, overall, it's talking about uh, bring back union jobs. That's what, that's what so much of the, that, that message is about, jobs that actually can support families. So for anti-racist work in white communities, it's about addressing those real, the real issues that are in white communities. Uh, I mean, the high levels of drug use and alcoholism and suicide and depression. I mean, that's all this death culture of racism that eats away at our, our sense of a community, sense of hope, sense of possibility, and instills fear and depression. So doing that work in white communities, aligning with people of color for sanctuary, the multiracial movement for the uh, Women's March and the Day Without a Woman Today. Um, so it's a both and. Uh, you know, multiracial collaboration and solidarity and coming together and work that is in white communities where white people are developing. How do we talk to young white people? How do we talk to white communities about racial justice in a way that isn't about trying to make white people feel bad about racism, but trying to get white people to be enraged about how racism is using them as white people to work against people of color work against economic justice for everyone, work against ra uh, multiracial democracy, and ultimately work against themselves. So I'm not trying to get white people to feel guilty about racism. I'm trying to help support white people to connect to their outrage about how racism has turned us into soldiers against our own interests, our, our own uh, 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 being able to be in a beautiful society, in a healthy society, and turn us against people of color. So I'm curious how this um, also plays out where you, you live in Kentucky, right? Yes. <laughs> so I'm curious, how, is that where you're from originally? No, no, I, I've uh, been living here in Kentucky uh, more recently here. It was in Tennessee before, but I grew up in California. So oh. love brought me out to the South. Love brought you to the South. All right, good. So, <laughs> so, so talk about, so, so how does that play out in Kentucky? I read an interesting article about in Kentucky about this last election and how there were many poor folks, white folks especially I'm talking about, who did not vote in this election in Kentucky, though they lean more towards Democrats and Republicans in many ways, uh, and, the, and a couple of stories that I read. So I'm just curious how that plays out in terms of organizing around race for you in a place like Kentucky. Yeah, so in Kentucky, uh, there's a fantastic organization called Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, and they're a statewide there are statewide organizations that has chapters throughout the uh, throughout the state. So in rural parts of the state, in in the cities, 
um, in the, in small towns, in all the different uh, counties of Kentucky. And they have a multi-issue platform where it's, they're working against, uh, you know, mountaintop removal where, uh, you know, the, the, these companies are coming in and blowing up the mountains, the beautiful mountains in Appalachia um, to try to get at the, uh, the coal, um, to try to get at the energy sources and trying to extract. Um, and so much of that is extracting not only from the earth, but also from the community um, and, and leaving uh, instead of a beautiful, uh, a beautiful mountaintop area, you know, destruction. Uh, so working against mountaintop removal um, in, in Appalachia, while also working for uh, voter reenfranchisement of people who have been convicted of felonies here in Kentucky, um, and so trying to get more and more um, people to be able to be a part of the voting uh, process, to be able to um, have political power, uh, while also working around um, uh, progressive taxation in the state to actually have resources going to our communities, working-class communities, um, as opposed to um, just you know taxes going uh, to, to, to subsidize the rich. Um, so this, this example, they bring together, they've got a, there's, I'm a member of uh, Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, and there's 11,000 other members, and it's multiracial with areas that are mostly white and working class, as well as areas like here in Louisville, where I live, where it's uh, more multiracial with a lot of black leadership. Uh, and then it's so beautiful to see all these folks from all over Kentucky, uh, uh, an incredible coming together, people of all different backgrounds, coming and talking about a shared vision for Kentucky, uh, the, the multi-issue platform that they're working on. So they'll go to the state house and protest. I mean, right now they're at the state house talking about how we don't need this right to work law, um, how we need uh, uh, to continue to expand clean energy with solar and other uh, clean energy industry. So they've got a whole wide range of issues that they work on that bring people together. And I think that's a powerful model. Uh, for how people can come together. But in Louisville, Kentucky, there's also a long history, Anne and Carl Braden were white anti-racist civil rights movement leaders in the 50s and 60s who, right. worked, who worked alongside Dr. King and Ella Baker and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. In the 1950s, in Kentucky, the Anne and Carl Braden team were putting out a newspaper called the Southern Patriot. This right. is a newspaper that went all over the South, all over the North, talking about why the civil rights movement would expand a democratic society that would be in the interest of all people, why white people should support the civil rights movement. They would highlight examples of white people uh, joining the black-led civil rights movement and how white people could do that. They would, their audience was white people, and, but they would talk about the civil rights movement all throughout the South, but again, from this perspective that the South is locked in white working class and white poor folks to a white supremacist agenda that also takes away their economic rights. And so Ann and Carl Braden put out this newspaper, uh, Southern Patriot, recruited white Southerners all over the region to be a part of the civil rights movement, knowing that this kind of a multiracial movement would expand uh, uh, not only a better society for you know, young black children, but also for young white children. And so that vision of anti-racist work is strong and alive in Kentucky. And in fact, Ann and Carl Braden's work in the 50s and 60s with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committees and others around that anti-racist vision continues to inspire the national showing up for racial justice all over the country. So those so, Ann and Carl Braden 
uh, particularly Ann Braden and her leadership, inspires young and, and new white anti-racist folks today. Uh, so that's the legacy of Kentucky and anti-racist work. Well, when you get to Baltimore, of course, Chris, I'm going to have to bring out, I have almost every issue of the Southern Patriots still in my trunk. So, Oh, I, 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 that is beautiful. That is be- and, and that's what I'm talking about. When white people start to bring a leadership that talks to white people, not as, hey, you all racist, you know, uh, right. ignorant white folks, uh, but it says, you know what, white supremacy is playing us. White supremacy is working on our fears. It is working on our legitimate desires for a better future for our kids. It is playing us and turning us against the people who we should be joining with. It is, it is turning our capacity to love into an engine of hate. And this is what racism is doing to our community. It is, it is, it is as you said before, it is a cancer that is eating away at the people who carry it with them. So this racism is not only turning us into people who uh, uh, create you know, violence in communities of color, whether it is uh, uh, attacks on individuals, the South Asian men who have been shot and killed, whether it is attacks on black churches, whether it is legislation trying to, uh, uh, to essentially destroy public education, destroy environmental protections that the Trump administration is launching, that racism is also killing us. And you can see that in the ways that so many white communities are struggling with suicide and uh, uh, drugs and, and, and alcohol and depression. And I saw that in my own family growing up. And so, again, I do this work around anti-racism and showing up for racial justice does this work in Baltimore and around the country because we know, we know that racial justice means advancing a multiracial democracy which is a better future for all of us. So if you want to talk more and hear more from Chris Crass and meet him, this Friday night, March the 10th at 6.30 p.m. at the Church of the Redeemer, 5603 North Charles Street here in Baltimore, uh, being co-sponsored by Surge, showing up for racial justice, uh, and the and Baltimore and the Baltimore Racial Justice Action. Uh, the event is called Chris Crass, Collective Liberation and the Era of Trump. Uh, so check it out. This uh, Friday night, 6.30 p.m. at the Church of Redeemer, 5603 North Charles Street. And Chris Crass, thank you so much. Welcome to Baltimore on Friday, and thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thank you so much, and happy anniversary. And I really, just the work you've been doing for a long time, this is what we need. So thank you for letting me be a part of your show. I'm glad you were here. I appreciate you too as well. Thank you so much, Chris. All right, take care. So take a short break, folks. We'll be right back. We're going to look at the crisis in Baltimore City Schools and what activists are doing about it and what we can do about it uh, not to let our children down. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Mm-hmm. 